This is the Epilog Audio Experience. The language and content on this podcast may be unsuitable for certain audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to History Chatter. This is your friend Anirban. We've just had two wonderful Durga Puja special podcasts. but it's time to be back to our weekly sessions once again we've been talking about early stages of football we said in the first part of our podcast on the early history of football that uh, till the 18th century it was a terribly violent game and honorable and eminent men in england he did it and described it as a bloody sport the language that they would use were graphic and graphically dismissive but tides began to turn in the 18th century the traditional forms of football began to decline and models of play much more appropriate to an urbanizing industrializing society were being formed at the public schools that indeed is a watershed in the history of football it's the development of the new kinds of football and its participants that uh, we should really now pay attention to yet it was not an overnight change for uh, several decades as a matter of fact football in public school had a complicated history it is impossible really to say when or how football came first to be adopted at various public schools it was played at charterhouse eton harrow rugby shrewsbury westminster and winchester and these were of course the only public schools uh, at the time at the end of the 18th and beginning of the 19th centuries and uh, earlier these were known for certain that many of the boys who attended these schools during this period uh, and who later wrote memoirs of their school days later described the football of their youth um from their recall it emerges that in many respects the games they played did not differ greatly from the traditional forms the rules were still oral local differences continued to prevail and football still retained the wild unruly character of former times nevertheless it had developed in certain important ways for the first time it was played on a regular weekly basis it had its own specific season which lasted throughout the autumn 
and spring terms. Here, also for the first time, it was played regularly by members of the upper and middle classes, though not yet by adult members of these classes. This was to prove of decisive importance for the future. The former association of football with lower status uh, was a stigma indeed uh, and that caused uh, an extension and refinement of what had previously been a relatively rude or simple game. There was um, certainly in England of those days a distinct status hierarchy of sports uh, and football stood at the very bottom. For example, an Etonian wrote in 1831, and I quote, I cannot consider the game of football at all gentlemanly. After all, the Yorkshire common people paid." Unquote. It was not until it had been played regularly at the public schools for uh, 20 or more years that uh, football became a respectable leisure time activity for the middle and upper classes. The public school authorities in the 1800s were, for the most part, uh, directly hostile to the game, probably on account of its uh, low-class association. Samuel Butler, headmaster of Shrewsbury in, in 1798-1836, thought uh, it was, and I quote, fit only for butcher boys, more fit for farm boys and laborers than young gentlemen, unquote. Such hostility was by no means uncommon during this period. Butler attempted to suppress football at Shrewsbury, but the boys continued to play in defiance of his ruling. Their ability to do so was deeply rooted in the character of late 18th and early 19th century public schools. The feature that most strongly distinguished the public school football of this period from traditional forms was the way in which it was adapted to the social structures of the schools. In each case, it functioned as part of their characteristic authority system of uh, prefects and facts. Indeed, it can only be understood in terms of the part it played in this system. It's necessary, therefore, to, to understand uh, the public school system as it operated at the end of 18th and the beginning of the 19th centuries. During the 18th century, the public schools, uh, the ones that uh, we referred to, um, would provide free education for the poorer classes. 
But they now began to draw their membership increasingly from the landed aristocracy and gentry. By 1780, they had become essentially upper-class institutions. The poor were virtually excluded. As a result, public school authorities in the early 1800s were directly hostile to the game, probably because of its lower-class associations. In the opinion of uh, Samuel Butler, who was the headmaster of Shrewsbury from 1798 to 1836, football was fit only for butcher boys, more fit for them than young gentlemen. Such hostility was uh, pretty common during this period. Butler attempted to completely suppress the game at Shrewsbury, but the boys continued to play in defiance of his orders. The ability to do so was uh, deeply rooted in the character of the late 18th and early 19th century public school. The strongest distinctive feature of the public school football at this period was that it adapted to the social structures of the schools. In case of the schools, um, there was this characteristic authority system of prefects and fags. The entry of football in the schools can best be understood in terms of the part it played in this system. It is necessary to consider the public school system as it uh, operated in England in the late 18th and early 19th centuries. Public schools were earlier a place to provide free education for the poorer sections of the society. But uh, by the late 18th century, the children of the landed gentry and aristocracy had been making inroads. By 1780 or so, Public schools had become essentially upper-class institutions and uh, the poor were virtually excluded. As a result, the earlier system of authority broke down. Teachers were unable to maintain discipline, probably because the boys did not like being given orders by men who came from lower classes than the students themselves. Control of the schools effectively passed into the hands of the oldest and the most powerful boys. When masters tried to assert their authority, overt conflict and even rebellion followed. Each of these seven public schools experienced rebellion during uh, this period. 
Winchester, for example, uh, had no less than six rebellions between 1770 and 1818. It was so serious in 1818 that um, the army had to be called with bayonets and uh, again at Rugby in 1797 it was so serious that the boys burned books and smashed uh, windows. The army once again was called in and the riot act had to be read. The limited power of the school authorities at this time was not without its effect on relations among the boys themselves. The strongest boys uh, held power and as would be expected from boys of that age, uh, they had uh, often to exercise their power cruelly. Bullying and cruel practical jokes were the order of the day in the late 18th and early 19th century public schools. So their way of playing football corresponded to the character of the authority system at this stage. It was one of the means by which prefects asserted their power over the lower boys. The prefects could call on younger boys to play at any time and one of their duties of a fag or younger boys was to fag out at football. The defensive role was compulsory for them and it was a mark of their status as fags. The prefects retained for themselves the prerogative of attack. This is how it was played in rugby, uh, for instance, and I quote, all fags were stopped on going out after three o'clock calling over and compelled to go into the close. Then two of the best players in the school commenced choosing it about a score on each side. A somewhat rude division was made of the remaining fags half of whom was sent to keep goal on the one side and the other half to the opposite goal for the same purpose. Well, it was by no means uncharacteristic of the stage that the name given to football at Shrewsbury was Dowling. It's the same really uh, for fagging. The boys themselves were responsible for running their football. Masters were hostile to the game and in any case their power in the schools was extremely limited. Games tended to be disorderly and not regulated. During the period under consideration, uh, they played a rough and relatively unrestrained form of football called football in the cloisters in Charterhouse, for instance. The cloisters in questions were 70 yards long by uh, 12 feet wide, paved with smooth flagstones and surrounded by sharp jagged flints. A number of buttresses protruded into the cloisters, providing hazards for the player and determining some of the characteristics of the game. G.S. Davis, a former headmaster of Charterhouse, 
has described uh, the brutality in some detail. Quote, all the fags had to block the respective goals. It consisted of a series of squashes or dead blocks in which the ball was entirely lost to sight and a mass of humanity surged and heaved seamlessly, often for as much as half an hour at a time. The game was unavoidably rough. Hard knocks had to be taken cheerfully. A fierce charge was apt to send a player with his head against the wall and much skin was lost at times. Now, at rugby, players even wore special boots called nevis for purposes of hacking. Nevis, uh, according to an old rugbyan writing in the Cornhill magazine in 1922, had, and I quote, a thick sole, the profile of which at the toe much resembled the ram of an ironclad. Now, this kind of affairs had to change. During the 1830s and 40s, largely in response to pressures from outside, the public schools were forced to undertake reform of the perfect fragging system. At about the same time, as part of a general effort to improve relations with their pupils, the masters came to rethink their ideas uh, upon the role of games in education. Such changes uh, made possible the emergence of a more orderly and civilized kind of football. We need to look briefly at the changing institutional and uh, ideological framework in which they occurred. The first school where reform of the perfect fagging system was carried out was rugby under the famous Thomas Arnold who was headmaster from 1828 to 1842. The prevalence of bullying, drinking and disorderly behavior generally in the school concerned him greatly. He saw their connection with the perfect fagging system, which he felt allowed the boys too much freedom, but he chose the system itself as the instrument with which to counter them. He did this by formalizing and legitimizing uh, some of these practices. The prefects were henceforth formally appointed and they were responsible to him personally. The sixth form as a whole, he transformed into a kind of elite whose moral example was to impress the rest of the school with the ideals of the Christian gentleman. Such was the success that Arnold achieved and so great was the need for reform of the perfect fagging system that uh, they soon followed suit, other schools followed suit um, and modified their own versions of the system of authority along similar lines. Of course, it would be wrong to suggest that Arnold alone was responsible for these reforms or even that it was accidental that rugby was the first school where they should have occurred. 
There was a reason, of course. The boys at that school, drawn in mainly from the professional and business middle classes, were for most um, part amenable to reforms in the direction of greater discipline than uh, the more aristocratic uh, clientele of, uh, for instance, Eton. That said, uh, they were forced on the schools by pressure from the middle classes who had grown in numbers, wealth and power as the 19th century proceeded and industrialization gathered momentum. The bullying and general disorder that prevailed were not conducive to the kind of education they desired. And it was to the perfect fagging system that they traced such evils. They demanded its reform, yet they did not desire its total abolition. Since the large measure of self-rule it accorded to the boys coincided to a high degree with the laissez-faire principles, most of them cherished. What they wanted was modification of the perfect fagging system in a way that would permit the masters to re-establish their control and allow their sons to get down to the serious business of preparing for their careers under stable conditions. By the 1830s, uh, on the public school as with other social issues, the middle-class pressure from reform had grown so intense that um, the conservative aristocracy and gentry were forced to give way. More and more of them came to see that the best way of maintaining their position was to admit partial change, to reform the perfect fagging system in the way that most of the critics wanted. To this end, masters encouraged boys to play, helped with organization of their games, and even, in some cases, played alongside them. In no case, however, did the masters usurp the power of the leading boys, as far as games were concerned. In keeping with their own desire to retain the relative autonomy of the boys, and with the constraints acting upon them from outside the schools, they allowed the organization of games to remain in the virtually independent hands of the boys themselves. Football was still rough and wild. It needed to be domesticated and to become far more orderly and controlled. One of the first effects of the efforts of the masters in this direction was that the boys reduced the rules to written form. Written rules were first produced at Rugby in 1845, at Eton in 1849, at Charterhouse in 1862, Harrow, Shrewsbury, Westminster and Winchester all reduced their rules to written form around this time. But at present, the exact dates are unknown. It is interesting to note that rugby, the first school at which reform of the perfect fagging system was undertaken, was also the first school 
to reduce its football rules to writing. This in itself brings out the close connection between the game at this time with the system of authority in public schools. The kind of rules formulated in connections with the master's drive to establish a form of football compatible with their educational aims can be illustrated by reference to some of the rules produced at rugby in 1845. There were two kinds of rules really, some dealing with playing techniques and others uh, regulated relations between players. Here are some of the rules included in the second category. One, no player being off his side shall hack, charge, run in, touch down in goal or interrupt a catch. Two, a player standing up to another may hold one arm only, but may hack him or knock the ball out of his hand if he attempts to kick it or go beyond the line of touch. Three, no hacking with the heel or above the knee is fair. Four, no player may wear projecting nails or iron plates on the shoes or heels of his shoes or boots. Thus, the type of force so far pronounced legitimate in the game were hedged around with conditions and prohibitions. From the 1814 onwards, the boys had to exercise a far greater degree of self-control in their football. And it became a game much more suited to the educational aims of school authorities. It is interesting to note that a further process of local differentiation occurred at the stage. At Eton in 1849, rules were laid down, enjoining that, quote, the ball may not be caught, carried, thrown, or struck by hand, and that, quote, a goal is gained when the ball is kicked between the goal posts, provided it be not above them, unquote. Eton was the only school where the use of hands was forbidden at this time and where the rules distinctly stated that goals were to be scored between rather than above the bar. It seems likely that these two rules were a direct response to the development of differentiating marks in the game at rugby where the distinctive practices had been developed of carrying the ball and scoring above the bar. One can imagine how all this must have incensed the boys at Eton, who felt their own school to be the leading public school in all respects. They answered by placing an absolute taboo on handling in their own game, as if to say, quote, now we shall see who gives the lead to others, unquote. It was, one might suggest, an attempt to put the upstart rugby in its place. Thus, a further important driving force in the development of football was a competitive struggle 
between the leading public schools to become the model-making center for the game on a national level. The absolute taboo imposed on the use of hands at Eton and the introduction of carrying at rugby are good examples of how the game developed under the impetus of such competitive pressure. This distinction of the 1840s formed the basis of our present distinction between rugger and soccer. When the game was diffused from the public schools into the wider society during the next two decades and pressure for unified rules arose, it proved impossible for the proponents of these two different models to agree and uh, the bifurcation of the rules of football that resulted from public school rivalry in the 1840s was perpetuated on a national level. Football had come a long way from the forests and from being kicked around by hundreds of poor laborers, it had reached the hallowed portals of the British public schools where uh, the systems of authority was eventually revised, rules were put in place and by the 1860s football had practically become a household game in the entire United Kingdom. From there it had come to the colonies and by the end of 19th century it would be enthusiastically taken up by Indian uh, members of the empire as well. What is lost in this um, contemporary madness and appreciation all around the globe of football is its lower class and humble and plebeian laboring roots. The football uh, still remains in some way the most popular game in the world probably because of its essentially popular and lower class origins which we must never forget as we should never forget the pioneering research of Eric Dunning. That is the end of this episode of History Chatter. Please tell us what you think about it. Please tell us what more you'd like included and subscribe to History Chatter in Geo7, Ghana, Spotify, Apple Podcasts and Hubhopper. Till then, this is your friend Oniban signing off. See you next week.